Hello and welcome to the Talk Spot. I'm Tim Scott, and today I'm talking with Jose Luis Costa, Professor of Toxicology at the University of Campinas in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Welcome, Jose Luis. Hello, everyone. Hello, Tim. It's very good to be here. Yeah, nice to have you here. Uh, one thing I've noticed from uh, reading all of your work, Jose Luis, you seem to do a, a wide variety of things. You must really love forensic toxicology. What, what is it that drew you to forensic toxicology? So uh, I've been working with forensic toxicology since my undergraduate school when I worked with cocaine analysis in urine samples. And when I finished this, I moved to Sao Paulo and did my master's in analytical toxicology at the University of Sao Paulo, and then the PhD in analytical chemistry, also in the University of Sao Paulo. At the same time, I was a forensic toxicologist from Sao Paulo State Police. I've been working there since 2002 until 2016, when I moved to Campinas to be professor of toxicology. So how did you find that transition from working as a forensic toxicologist in a police lab to the university sector? Yeah, it was very good. It was very good. It's good to teach. I like to teach. And I still working with many of my old colleagues in the, the forensic labs because many of them came to Campinas to run some samples in our laboratory. So we have a close collaboration in research uh, with, with them. So I've been out of the forensic laboratories in Brazil, but uh, I still doing forensic toxicology with them. Is that something that you initiated, those links, or what, did the links with the university already exist? No, no. I, I, I started these links, Yeah. In university, we, we, we used to have many experience uh, with toxinology, with the studying of animals and poison animals and poison plants. But the forensic toxicology analysis, this is something that I bring with me to University of Campinas. Also, we have many, many, uh, the guys here at University of Campinas have many experience in clinical toxicology too. The Poison Control Center here has around 40 years old. So they, they really know how to manage the intoxications in the hospital. And I've been working with these guys too. So today I work with both forensic and clinical toxicology. But uh, for sure, the forensic toxicology experience I bring with me to the university. Toxinology is very interesting. In Australia, we have a lot of poisonous animals. Do you have the same in Brazil, poisonous plants and animals? Yes, yes. We have plenty of here, plants of, uh, of uh, snakes, scorpions, and spiders, mostly. Yeah, same as but, us. But, but uh, I, I know that you guys have very, very bad animals there. <laughs> yes, we do. That's what, that's what most visitors to Australia, that's the first thing they hear about is all our poisonous creatures. People come here and hope they won't get uh, bitten or stung or whatever. So Brazil is a very large country, both geographically and in population. I imagine there's some unique challenges that are faced by forensic toxicologists in Brazil. What's it like working as a forensic toxicologist in Brazil? Yeah, here we have 26 states. It's a federal country. 
So we have 26 states and each of these states has their own forensic laboratories. They are independent from each other. So I've been working to the Sao Paulo State Forensic Toxicology Laboratory. And I have colleagues in other uh, states' laboratories too. They are very different laboratories. They are very different in the structure and the, the number of forensic toxicologists and so on. The most common toxicants that they seem from the south and the north are sometimes are different. So like we have many cases of uh, cocaine piercing all around the country, but we used to see more uh, designer drugs in the, the south and southeast of Brazil than in the north of Brazil, for example. I think one other thing that we have to say is that in Brazil, uh, people used to, to move from the forensic chemistry and forensic toxicologists uh, like the same thing. They used to say everything is forensic toxicology. And we, I know that when you are talking in the TIAFT meetings and some other uh, uh, international meetings, the, we are, have a clear differentiation of the CESET drug analysis and the biological sample analysis. So in Brazil, people used to say that they are forensic toxicologists, but even when they work with seized material analysis, but also with biological sample analysis. Hey, I've got a joke for you, Jose Luis. What's the difference between a forensic toxicologist and a forensic chemist? Forensic chemists don't concentrate. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Very nice joke. So you mentioned cocaine is obviously a, a big one in Brazil. What other types of the traditional drugs do you see? Do you see a lot of heroin, marijuana? No. No heroin in 14 years working to Sao Paulo State Police. I just saw heroin once. Wow. And no more than this. Yeah, it's not it's really rare here in Brazil. Uh, in fact, we have a, our most of our seizures is from uh, marijuana, for sure. And then cocaine. And, but we have many problems with cocaine, like in the, in the forensic toxicology laboratory with uh, overdoses, like acute poisoning by cocaine, and all the violence related to cocaine traffic. This is a, a big problem in Brazil. We see also some desired drugs, for sure, some NPS, uh, many, many MDMA, but uh, I would say that Cocaine and uh, marijuana uh, sounds around 80 or 90% of the seizure drugs in Brazil. So other stimulant drugs like methamphetamine, for example, they haven't come in to try to displace cocaine? No, no. this is, is very rare. We had some, some methamphetamine seizures some, sometime in back to the 2010. But it's not so common. It's not so common to have other stimulants here in Brazil, different than cocaine. Another thing interesting in Brazil is we don't see many opioids here too, like the fentanyls and fentanyl analogs. It's just one or two cases. It's rare for us too. And also designer benzos that we are seeing in many countries in Europe, in the United States, uh, I just hear about designer business in Brazil twice in these years. 
All right, that's interesting. I mean, sometimes those uh, designer benzos go with the designer opioids. Sometimes it's the same populations who are using a lot of those drugs. We used to say that we we prefer the stimulants than the depressors of the this <laughs> central nervous system. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned NPS. You've been involved in setting up the INSPECT program in Brazil. Tell us about that. Yeah. INSPECT is a new project that we're working on it. Uh, this is the first initiative that we put together the two major universities of Brazil, that University of Sao Paulo and University of Campinas, uh, working together with the forensic laboratories from the Sao Paulo State Police, the Sergipe State Police, and our Brazilian Federal Police. The aim of the INSPECT project is to have made the information of CZ, of CZ NPS and also the forensic toxicology information together in the same package. Today, we have the information of the CZ drugs in the police reports and like our information in the Poison Control Center, they are in our uh, health system only. And the idea of INSPECT is like to put this information together like to have, it's not an early warning system, but we expect that this could work as well as our early warning system. To, we can prepare the clinical toxicology laboratories to know which NPS will be in the market as soon as we can. This is one of our the ideas of the inspect. And also in the, the post-mortem samples, you know that it's not so easy to identify NPS and in, in post-mortem samples, sometimes it's, it's worst. And if we can have the information of the, the, the seizures, uh, we can prepare the laboratory early to, to detect this kind of substances. Yeah, I was just on a, a recent episode we just recorded, um, we were just talking about the importance of having you know, poison control centers, forensic toxicologists, forensic chemists, uh, clinical labs, all of these different sources of information to, get, to gather that information about which NPS they're seeing because they're different in the different contexts. Mm -hmm. For sure, for sure. And all of them, uh, they need the same information. All of them have their own information, but they need uh, to share this information with each other because... If we share this information, we can have a better uh, insurance, a better health system, and, and this is important for everyone. We, we had a first step that was to, to convince the justice that we can have information from the forensic labs in the universities. Here in Brazil, the, the all forensic service is from the uh, security system. It's all a, gov a governmental uh, service. It's different from like Europe where, that we can have the forensic toxicology laboratories in the university. This could not happen here in Brazil. The, the whole forensic service has to be done by the, the state government. And then we have to, to, to convince the justice that this kind of information could be shared with the universities and the poison control centers without problem to the, the, the persecution. This was the first step that took some time that we had to convince our, our judge to, yeah. 
to realize the project. There's Sometimes that's the hardest the science, bit. Yeah. In the sciences, it's a very good idea. It's easy to, to be done. But in the, the, in the practical aspect, it's not so easy sometimes. Yeah. So you've also done some work with looking at NPS at festivals and things like that. Uh, that was some interesting work. What did you find there? Yes. We, we run this project in, in, like in local parties, like university parties, like small parties, less than a thousand people in the party, and also in huge festivals, like with 5,000, 10,000 uh, participants. And we've gone to there and took some water fluid samples. We see many, many, many MDMA and also cocaine and THC for sure. But we saw many NPS too, like N-methylpentylone, methylone, and also many, many abuse of ketamine too. We heard about the ketamine abuse in Brazil, but we didn't have the numbers of this abuse, and we saw many, many samples with ketamine. I think ketamine is one of those drugs, you actually get very high concentrations in oral fluid. Yes. So yes. it's quite an easy one to detect. Yeah. The, the, I think the lack of our, of our uh, project was the synthetic cannabinoid analysis because we use a target method for uh, the analysis, is a, a triple quadrupole method. And we know that our uh, synthetic cannabinoid list is maybe not uh, so updated as it has to be at the moment. So we didn't see too many synthetic cannabinoids in our samples. But on the other hand, we also didn't see many seizures of synthetic cannabinoids in Brazil uh, until nowadays when we are seeing many synthetic cannabinoids at the prisoner system. So uh, the lack of synthetic cannabinoids in our fluid samples may be related to our method for detection, but also to the poor consumption of this kind of NPS in Brazil. Maybe. Have you had a lot of synthetic cannabinoids over the last decade in Brazil? So not too much. We have many, many uh, phenylethylamines like N-bomen and bowls and synthetic catenones. We, have, we do have some synthetic cannabinoids, but uh, it's, this is more recently, like uh, from 2017 to now. And there, there are some seizures in, in, in like being grass in, in, in to be smoked, but most of that kind of noise we are seeing in paper, paper materials. So the, the work that you've done in prisons, that's with the infused papers that are being smuggled into the prisons? Yes. All of them was infused papers going to inside the, the prisoner system. Yeah, It's a difficult time to be looking for synthetic cannabinoids because with the recent class-wide ban in China, new synthetic cannabinoids are just sort of exploding. There's so many different ones. Some of them yes. don't seem to be very active. So it's a very difficult time for anyone to be keeping up with uh, all the synthetic cannabinoids in their method. <laughs> sure, sure it is. It. One bit of research that you've been involved with, and I've seen uh, some other papers coming out of Brazil as well about this, is the use of green chemistry or the application of green chemistry. What's, what's green chemistry? Well, nowadays we are trying to say green analytical toxicology, 
we use the same ideas from the green chemistry. That is the use of more ecologically correct uh, alternatives to sample preparation, for example. Not only sample preparation, but mostly in the sample prep step. Like we try to use less organic solvents, less toxic solvents, like the derivatization process. If we can avoid it, it's good for the environmental, but also for the analyst. And why we are trying to say green analytical toxicology? Because we also have some other aspects in to analytical toxicology that may be uh, involved. Like if you use less sample, it's great for everyone. Like we, we need to collect less blood sample from the patient. We, we may have some problem to collect uh, adequate volume of vitreous humor. So if, if we use less sample, we can run the, the many screening procedures and confirmations with low sample volumes. And also the logistics. As you said, Brazil is a very huge uh, country. And sometimes you have to, to send the samples from one side to the other. And if we, we have to move with samples in like, like blood sample in liquid form, we have many arrangements that have to be done to this transportation. We have to use dry ice and or special package. And this involves money. This involves like the logistic process that affects sometimes the, the, the environmental too. And if you can have some like procedures that you can use less sample, it's easy to transport. Like if you use like dried blood spots, we can transport the samples with uh, like in a, a paper uh, mail and it's easy then the, to put this in dry ice. So the green analytical toxicology put together all these ideas like to use less solvents, less electric uh, current, less samples, and like to be more environmentally friendly analytical toxicology analysis. Yeah, I think it's a, a great idea, a great initiative, and it's great that you're leading the way in that area because we certainly do generate a lot of waste as, uh, I mean, any lab does, a lot of plastic waste, a lot of solvent waste. Uh, we use a lot of energy. And it, I mean, it doesn't seem like we're going to start using less energy because our instruments are getting more and more energy intensive. We've got more vacuum pumps, I think, than we've ever had in my laboratory. But yeah, it's important for us to find ways to to try and minimize our environmental impact where we can. And uh, also, we have to, to dispose all of these materials after the analysis. If you if you make too many trash, you have to send this trash or anywhere, and you have to pay to to send this trash to to the appropriate local. So it costs a lot. But one thing that you have to put in mind that is that all of this uh, is possible when you have high sensitive instruments, because if you use less sample, you need to have uh, sensitive instruments to detect these substances because you have a lower mass there to be detected. And I, I remember some episode of the TalkSpot that you guys discussed about if we need too much sensitivity in our French toxicology laboratories. Yeah. The sensitivity is important, 
in this way, if we can use less sample, less solvent. Uh, so this this may be important, but I totally agree with you guys in that episode that where is the limit? Where we have to move down and down and down and down with the concentrations? Yeah, there's always so, so many different things to balance, isn't there, when, when you're developing a method. One of the things you mentioned in that paper where you were proposing this idea of green analytical toxicology was aiming at more sustainable approaches during method development. What do you mean by that? Like if, if you can use like some procedures that are, are easy to be done or can be easily automated, this could be uh, easier for everyone. Like if you have a, a many, many samples to run in a day, if you can have this automated process, uh, this could be useful for the whole laboratory, for the analysts and the job to be done. You can, you can run easily all of these. So we can have some green analytical toxicology procedures that you can run in the automatic auto samplers, like if, when we use microextraction in sorbent packet, this, this is alternative to SPE, and we can use less sample. You put the, the solid phases material in a packet inside the syringe, and you can uh, aspirate and dispense the sample and the solvent in the, this needle. So how the procedure will be done in the syringe. And you can reuse this, this uh, syringe for couple extractions, like we use sometimes 50 or uh, sometimes 100 samples, and it works fine. For sure, you can have some problems with like more viscous samples, like blood sample. Sometimes you have to dilute the sample prior to the MAPS analysis. But it worked fine to like overflowed, uh, it worked fine to urine samples. So, yeah, it ran fine. So, now there seems to be a push more towards generic extraction techniques like protein precipitation kind of techniques rather than very targeted ones because you're trying to cover a large range of compounds often in your method. Are they typically greener than the you know a liquid liquid extraction or something like that because you're using you're probably using less toxic solvents let's say yes in the liquid liquid extraction you, you you usually use more toxic solvents worse than acetonitrile that you use to to protein precipitation and also in liquid liquid extraction we have to put some some force to to dry the extract. Like you have to use nitrogen stream or a hidden block. You you have to, to put some energy there to, to go away with the solvent and then put the sample properly for the GC or LC analysis. When you do the protein precipitation, we usually don't just dilute this, that solvent, that acetonitrile to the vial and to the LCMS. So for sure it's cleaner than the liquid liquid extraction. And this works very fine because when we have to, when we want to look like to many, many different classes, uh, it's sometimes it's difficult to have a, a huge liquid-to-liquid procedure for many, many different classes. I know that uh, Professor Moher would say that they, they have a very good screening method for GC and liquid-to-liquid <laughs> extraction for sure. Uh, uh, but when you have a protein precipitation for LCMS. This works very fine. 
Again, we have to be to, to have in mind that the matrix effect exists and we have to, to take a look on it during the method development and method validation. So you've done some work with uh, GC and one interesting bit of work that you did was doing derivatization of compounds in on the instrument rather than derivatizing them first and then putting them on the instrument, which is the classic way to do it. Yes. We did a paper about this to anal- analyzing cocaine and their metabolites by GCMSMS. The derivatization uh, was done in the injection port of the GC. After the liquid extraction, we uh, derivatized the samples with BSDFA. And the derivatization occurs during the injection in the injection port of the GC. Uh, this derivatization works fine. We have better sensitivity in the GC triple quad than the single quad GC. So we can use like less sample. It's around 300 microliters of urine sample. And the derivatization was very reproducible in the GC injection, in the injection part of the GC. And it worked fine. This method works fine. We, we run this method day by day here in, in our laboratory. One thing that we have to put in mind is that we have to double check the, the liner of the, the GC every week or every 100 samples, because if you have a dirty liner, you will have problems with this derivatization. So the liner has to be cleaner to have a good reproducible of this procedure. The first thought I had when I saw that paper was, isn't this going to destroy the column? But you didn't find that. The no. column seemed to last quite well. Yeah, it worked fine, yes. Because if, if you put in mind, if, if you remember when you derivatize the samples with BSTFA, you also do the derivatization in the, the heating block, and then you put the BSTFA, all of this derivatization reaction to the vial and then run in the GC. So the BSTFA will be there in any way. The difference was that you don't have to wait the 20, 30 minutes in the, the heating block. We tried to use this proce- the same procedure for carbox THC analysis, but this didn't work so fine. Probably because the, the reaction to the carboxy THC and the BSFA took more time than the, we had in the injection port. But for benzoyl-echigonin and, and echigonin ester, it worked fine. If you have a good autosampler, you can program the autosampler to get some one microliter of the sample and then go in the other vial and get one microliter of the derivatization reagent and inject the both in the system. But in our case, our autosampler didn't do that. So we have to put everything in the same vial. We dry the, the liquid-to-liquid extract and redissolve it with a BSCFA and then direct inject in the GC system. Yeah, seems like a great approach. Yeah. If we can back to the like the, the generic procedure for uh, LC systems, we are working with uh, quetchers, micro-quetchers in uh, a wide range screening, and it works fine too. It works better than the protein precipitation procedure. We have lower matrix effect with macro-quetchers than with protein precipitation with acetonitrile only. 
And when we put that salt in the quetchers, we had a, like a better uh, separation of phases. And this is working very good for like post-mortem blood and urine samples. It works fine in our group. Yeah, we found it works well for post-mortem blood, especially when you're looking for things like pesticides, for example, where there's yes. a lot of different mm -hmm. classes. You've got to try and get them all out at once if you can. And yeah, it seems to work very well for things like that. Sure. And you just remember me that this is something different from Brazil, South America, and other countries. We have here in the French Toxicology Laboratory many, many cases of pesticide poisonings. And this is not so common in other countries, like in Europe and the United States. I, I don't know how it occurs in, in Australia. but Not too common. Here in, yeah. Not too common? Okay. But here in Brazil, we have like, I would say, here in Sao Paulo, we have like a thousand cases by year of, of uh, wow. pesticides, uh, fatal poisoning. It's nice to hear you say quetches as well. Peter tells me off as pronouncing it quetches. Uh, he says catches, but... Uh, Catch us. <laughs> yeah. So you've had a lot of involvement with TAFT over the years. You're the regional representative for Brazil at the moment, and you recently won the TAFT Achievement Award. Congratulations on that. Very prestigious award, a long line of uh, fantastic toxicologists who've won that award. Do you remember the first TAFT meeting that you went to? Yes, yes. My first TAFT meeting was a, a regional TAFT meeting. It was in 2006 in Santiago, in Chile. Uh, it was a very nice meeting. I was introduced to many of my... You know when you read the papers of those very famous forensic toxicologists in, yeah. in Santiago? I, can, I, can, I could meet them for the first time. I was there with Marlene Hilses. I was there with Olaf Drummer. I was there with Alan Verstrat, and I was there with Pascal Kings. It was a very good meeting. And the, the TF regional meetings is something very, it's, it's very great meetings because like these small meetings and we can, we can share information with the European and North American friends for sure, but also with our colleagues in the South America. In my first TIAFT meeting, it was 2007 in Seattle. It was a joint meeting of TIAFT and ICAT, if I can remember. So, and since then, I've, I've tried to be in the most of the TIAFT meetings that I can. Uh, I can so clear that uh, the, the importance of the South America and the TIAFT association and the, the, the whole association it's growing year by year. We now have many uh, colleagues. Every year we have more and more participation of the colleagues from the South America. And this is very important to us. The major of the countries in the South America are developing countries. And this uh, sharing the information that we can have in the TIAFT with the developing countries is very important. The whole opportunities that we can have to to share the knowledge with the developing countries. I, I, I'm saying about the South America, but for sure we can we can talk about the whole developing countries in Africa, in Asia, or so on. This is very important. This is very important initiative of the TIAFT to, to take a close look to the developing countries. And I, I do appreciate this. This is important to us. South America 
seems to have a lot of regional meetings. I think there's been one every year for the yes. last, what, seven or eight years. I mean, not during COVID, I suppose, but prior to that. It seems like there's a very vibrant and passionate forensic toxicology community in South America. Yes. If I can remember, this is back to 2004. Uh, the merits of these regional meetings is from uh, most of our Rui Ferrari from Argentina. He took this idea to put this, these regional meetings and make this happen. And we are very grateful to them because every year we have one of these, of, of these regional meetings, uh, each year in different South America countries. And it's a tradition. It's very good. It's, as I said, it's very good to be there. So we can share the information with our colleagues in the South America, but also talk with the, the, the other friends in the TFT. So have those regional meetings, like over the course of time that you've been having those, have they built the collaboration between the different countries in South America? Yes, the collaboration, most of our collaboration was like the, the networking of the colleagues. Since the regional meetings, we have many of like people from other countries came to Brazil, like to visit our laboratories, to, to visit the Forensic Toxicology Laboratory in Sao Paulo, and now visit our laboratories here in the rest of Campinas. I had the opportunity to go to other countries also and, and spend some time with them there. And it's, th th this meeting is, is important because like sometimes it's not cheap to go to Europe, uh, to go to Australia, to go to, to the Asia. And, but it's cheaper to us to like to fly to Buenos Aires, like this two hours flight from Sao Paulo. For Santiago, like three hours to, to Paraguay uh, from Sao Paulo is like two hours too. So it, it, it's close. It's close. Yeah. You, you're, a bit, close. you're a bit like us there. We're a long yes. way from everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you've had collaborations with. Uh, people from outside South America as well. Like you mentioned Marilyn Hustis. You've collaborated with Marilyn Hustis on uh, some projects with NIDA. Yes. I spent one year and the postdoc with Marilyn in the NIDA laboratories. This was 2013, 2014. Uh, it was a very good time there. I learned a lot with, with Marilyn and her team there. And since I back to Brazil, he was uh, very important to us because she teaches a lot, even from with the distance from the United States to Brazil. She came to Brazil many times to teach us here in person, but we worked a lot. We discussed a lot, many projects and papers, and we, we still work with Marilyn very close. It, it, this is very important to us. And she's one of the collaborators of the INSPECT project too. She's right. involved with the Inspect product, uh, also with Barry Logan. We also have a collaboration with the, the Center of Forensic Science so that Barry's running in the United States too. Yeah, Marilyn's been a great mentor to so many toxicologists around the world. Everyone you talk to mm -hmm. uh, has a story about Marilyn assisting them in some way or teaching them something. Yes, we are very grateful to her. Well, it was great to talk with you, Jose Luis. My pleasure. It was my pleasure and an honor to be here in the Tuxpot. All right, and we'll uh, we'll see you again soon.
See you soon, team. Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting, taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.